Hello and welcome to Best of Shows, a weekly conversation about the biggest things happening on the small screen and a guide to what TV is and is not worth your time. I'm Kristen Baldwin, TV critic at Entertainment Weekly, and I'm joined by my fellow EW critic and TV junkie, Darren Freenich. Hi, Darren. Kristen, how's it going today? This is a this is a relatively dark day this for is, our for our otherwise sunny podcast. It is a dark day because as as listeners may know, we're currently in the midst of our best of the decade countdown. We've done best reality shows, we've done best series finales, but today we're taking a turn for the worst, Darren. And we're gonna count down five each of the worst shows of the decade in different categories. We've got Worst Revival, Worst Season 2 after a great Season 1, Worst Comedy, Worst Reality Show, and of course, Worst Drama. So it's going to be rough, but I feel like we can get through it together, Darren. I, I think we can. And I will say, Kristen, you know, I, I, I like that we're doing it this way because I do feel like our next two episodes are just going to be nonstop classics. Nonstop. Um, and, and, you know, as critics, we obviously watch a lot of television. We, we watch a lot of bad television. I find that for the most part, bad TV kind of deletes from my brain right. pretty quickly. And so even kind of putting this week's lineup together, um, it, it was a it was an interesting journey back through uh, <laughs> some of the worst hours hours of my life yeah, uh, that were spent yeah. watching television this year. Uh, and so I'm I'm glad to be able to do this. I, I think there's going to be a lot of uh, fun conversations to be had. And obviously, we, we want to hear from people who have their own very memorable bad TV yes. experiences. Um, but uh, this is going to be a hard one, Kristen. It do you is. Wanna, uh, do you want to start us off with, with your worst revival? Yes. And, you know, there are a lot of revivals, a lot that happened. And, so many. You know, look, I'm before everyone starts shouting, why aren't you saying Roseanne? I'm going to say that Roseanne... And the revival, the show itself, was actually fine. It was actually mm-hmm. pretty good. You know, Roseanne the person was a dumpster fire. So, like, <laughs> I'm not putting Roseanne as my worst revival of the decade because the show was actually pretty good. Um, unfortunately, I'm going to have to go in another direction. My worst revival is actually uh, CBS's Murphy Brown. And uh, this ran... Uh, from September to December of 2018. And, you know, the Trump era did inspire a lot of comedy revivals, including NBC's Will and Grace, ABC's Roseanne, and then CBS's revival of their long-running news-themed comedy, Murphy Brown. And, you know, this was a show created by Diane English that was had always mined political headlines for its humor. But in the 20 years that Murphy Brown was off the air, the thing that originally made it so unique you know, it's incisive comedy about political headlines, it kind of became commonplace. And with her new incarnation of Murphy Brown, Diane English didn't really try to evolve what she once did so well. And instead, she just kind of went back to doing the same sort of shouty truth to power comedy that she was doing during the Clinton administration. And weirdly enough, the only truly entertaining parts of the revival focused on Murphy's relationship with her grown son and fellow journalist Avery Brown, but those were few and far between. I mean, the rest of it, it, you know, the cast is still a great cast, but they really, you know, they were given sort of storylines and writing that felt very almost old-fashioned in a way, and it, you know, took on current issues like the White House, banning reporters from the press room, or 
violence against reporters at political rallies. And there was a truly god-awful Me Too episode, too. Um, But it really just felt very sort of strident and agenda-driven and devoid of any kind of nuance. Did you watch any of it, Darren? I did, Kristen. And, you know, I I was not a a viewer of the original Murphy Brown really at all, though I I certainly kind of understood its its influence. Um, And so I think I'm someone who just kind of watched the revival and felt very strongly, oh, maybe I wasn't missing anything at all. And, and, you know, I I, I know that, you know, especially from kind of hearing from you that there is so much more going on in the original show. But this was one of those shows that structured itself as a response to a lot of things that were happening towards the end of this decade, Mm -hmm. Trump specifically, but just more generally the political situation. And it was one of the responses where I felt like, oh, this is this is like almost as problematic in many ways as the things it is arguing right. against. Yes. And, and you know, I, I, I don't want to say it's problematic as the horrible things that were happening, but in terms of the tone of it and in yeah. terms of the way that it seemed really kind of divorced from any sense of the reality of modern media, the yes. reality of political media, <laughs> you know, you, you know, um, you kind of mentioned the way that her relationship with her son, but there was a lot of potential there. Her yeah. son, I believe, was working for a conservative news network. Right, right. right. And I just think that's, you know, if you can do that the right way, that's potentially very interesting. But right. its portrayal of him, its portrayal of his dynamic on the network versus with Murphy Brown, none of it felt particularly emotionally real or funny is perhaps the kind of bigger issue. So I'm, yeah. I, and I will say, I'm glad you can you kind of bring this one up as your first one because, you know. There was a lot of bad TV, but what frustrated me most this decade was when you saw incredible talent yes. put to use for bad television. Yes. Does that kind of make sense to you? Absolutely. Like, we were having Slack chats before this episode. Like, are we going with genuinely bad, just sort of really stupid TV or or TV that had so much potential that it that it squandered? And this is yeah. one of those examples. I mean, we definitely, I definitely have some really stupid TV on this list as well. But this is an example of like a really talented group of people who had a real opportunity and just, uh, you know, just failed to execute. Yeah. Well, uh, I, I, I want to talk a lot about squandered potential when I talk about my <laughs> worst revival, Kristen. Uh, um, because, you know, you mentioned there were so many revivals this decade. Every now and then there was one that was so awesome enough where I would then have to say, well, I guess I'm in favor of revivals. Yeah. You, you know, if, if there is a Twin Peaks or if there mm-hmm. is the very occasional episode of The X-Files that brought me to tears, like, I guess that, yeah, this is something that I support. Um, but, Kristen, there was one revival that was so awful that it it kind of poisoned the original show for me oh, man. in a way that I would have not thought possible. I'm talking about Arrested Development, which oh, came back to life on yeah, Netflix yeah. in sort of two and a half seasons of steadily declining almost ultimately comedy-free pastiche Ugh. humor variations of what made it one of the best shows of the 2000s. I mean, like, I I am incredibly bullish about the first three seasons of Arrested Development, which aired on Fox, as maybe being the last great network sitcom. And certainly, you know, I, I can still quote chapter and verse from those episodes. Right. Um, Netflix made a lot of headlines when they announced they were going to bring the show back. The fourth season, which aired in 2013, I know a lot of people kind of defended on the grounds of doing something interesting. It was a somewhat strange example of a revival where the sheer success of all of the actors involved who played <laughs> right. the Bluth family, the, 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 the Bluths, of course, the kind of family in 
Orange County who just were steadily dwindling in more and more hilarious ways throughout the original series. The actors couldn't all really be on screen together that yes. often because they were so busy. And I, I acknowledge that, you know, what they produced with that, with that fourth season was an attempt to work around that. I'm not sure it really worked very much at all. And you really felt how there were certain characters and certain actors, Job or Tobias, who could kind of carry something like that. Um, whereas, uh, you know, George Sr., a lot of other family members just didn't really seem. Those focal episodes with Lindsay, with a lot of other people, just didn't really work. But then it kind of re-returned for a bifurcated season uh, from mm-hmm. 2018 through this year. And I have to say, Kristen, that season was utterly laughless. Um, And I mean, you know, I want to give some credit to the fact that a few of the actors were still, I think, trying very hard. But this was the first time with any revival where it it just it legitimately felt like I was watching, you know, like as if the show had been airing the whole time. And now they were in season 17. (laughs) Everyone was just bored. It it was just very. And I I do think that, you know, there were a lot of specific problems with it. I think it became very navel gaze. I think the in-jokes got to be too much. I I think turning Ron Howard into a character was not ultimately a great decision, and then the new season went really overboard Mm -hmm. with that. But just, just as a kind of real example of everything that was great about the original just dissipating this is the one that really stands out to me did, did you follow along ultimately with this last run of Arrested no Development, and or? you know what in part because i was just so kind of uh put off by the whole off-screen uh sort of drama you know oh, the, remember the uh, you know, the cast gave an interview with the New York Times and Jessica Walter, the fantastic actress, uh, living legend who, uh, you know, plays uh, plays Lucille Bluth, started crying, talking about wow. how terrible Jeffrey Tambor was to her on set at times. And in the course of that interview, Jason Bateman jumps in and starts saying like, oh, you know, it was just part of the show. It was just, you know, everybody has a different process. And like only Aaliyah Shawkat was the the lone other woman in a group of all these men was was brave enough to say, hey, actually, so what if he has a process? That process is not okay. And, you know. The idea, and then of course Jason Bateman apologized on Twitter after everybody was like, "What's your problem?" So that whole, you know, given that the the previous season, season four, was just not very good, and then this whole thing, it just really, it you know, it left such a bad taste in my mouth. I was like, "Forget yeah. it." Well, I'm not and, even going to bother. And Kristen, I will say that you know, some of those feelings manifested in the show itself. Um, this is a much larger topic that I've tried sure. and failed to write about because it's just so abstract. But one problem with a lot of the revivals in this. This decade was I had the feeling as someone who's watched and loved television my entire life of seeing shows that were once incredibly rebellious and I would have said progressive mm-hmm. stylistically mm-hmm. if not if not definitely progressive politically seeing them return and kind of become like reactionary it was a really difficult thing to witness. I mean, Arrested Development, it's about, you know, a family of, of rich, ridiculous people in Orange County. And so, you know, some of the kind of sourness of the revival, I assume that was just 
attempts at satire that were failing mm-hmm. um but but it was just it, it was a strange feeling to kind of see these shows x-files was another example when it was on its kind of off weeks of these shows that had been so bold and exciting and new yeah. kind of return and just seem almost like, seem like very angry middle-aged versions <laughs> of themselves yeah. and, and, and those were the kind of revivals of the 20 teens that really stood out as just being quite depressing yeah so i mean I don't know. I mean, I guess. Have you gone back to watch the original run? Any still of it? good? Still good. Still good. So still like, good. so you're not like it doesn't completely ruin your enjoyment of the original run. It it, it doesn't. It certainly is a pretty strong asterisk put next to yeah, it. Yeah, um, sure. And and that's and, and you know I think that when we talk about bad TV, as we'll kind of discuss in in our next category, you know, yes, there's bad television that's just bad through and through. But it's really hard to see something yes. that had been good become very very much not good. <laughs> oh, such a great segue because now we're gonna do a worst season two after a fantastic season one. Um, so my choice for this, and you know, actually I was surprised. I thought, oh, this isn't, there are not that many examples. And I went back and I was like, oh wait, yes, there are a lot of examples. Yeah. Um, my my choice after mulling over many options is True Detective uh, season two, which aired in 2015 on HBO. You know, there's been a lot of excellent auteur created television over the last decade from people like Ryan Murphy, Pamela Adlon, Robert and Michelle King, and of course, Phoebe Waller-Bridge. And while with the first season of HBO's True Detective, it seemed like creator and writer Nick Pizzolatto was poised to enter the auteur pantheon. Um, But when the first season, starring Matthew McConaughey and Woody Harrelson as Louisiana homicide detectives investigating a woman's murder, when it became a huge cultural phenomenon, HBO wanted a second season, Toot Sweet. So execs at the network pushed Pizzolatto to write eight new episodes ASAP. And the result was sort of a turgid, convoluted yarn about real estate and rape and murder, (laughs) featuring a lot of grim and aloof performances by Colin Farrell, Rachel McAdams, and Vince Vaughn, whose character, by the way, suffers a spectacularly ridiculous death in the middle of the desert. You know, I still watched every episode, but it was more out of this vain hope that the season might get better than out of any real interest in what was going on. And it's a real, really fascinating example of the conflict between creativity and business, because if HBO had given Pizzolatto the time he needed, who knows what he would have come up with. And at least the network does own up to its mistake. Uh, HBO programming chief Michael Lombardo said after the season's disappointing run, he said, I set him up. I set him up to deliver in a very short time frame something that became very challenging to deliver, and that's not what the show is. So he admitted, yeah, you know, we pushed him and, and the result was kind of a disaster. But can you imagine, like, had True Detective allowed been allowed to kind of take its own time, I do wonder if if it would have remained a phenomenon just simply because I feel like season three obviously was very disappointing and not certainly not as much of a mess as season one or season two. But I do wonder if the momentum just you know was never going to be able to get back after after that season two yeah. disaster. Yeah. It, you know, it's so hard to tell, Kristen. I think you know, you kind of mentioned the idea of auteur-driven storytelling. And mm-hmm. one of the interesting things about True Detective Season 2 was that it was one of the first times where it seemed very clear that someone who had been a key collaborator with a show, you know, Nick Pizzolatto wrote Season 1. It was directed by um, Carrie Fukunaga, who has gone on to have... Uh, 
well, maybe we'll talk about him later. Um, oh, but, snap. but um, you know, that season seemed to me to reflect a few different creative impulses, and and I, I would throw in Matthew McConaughey just doing some really incredible on-screen work alongside yeah. Woody Harrelson, and it just seemed like Pizzolatto kind of looked at that first season and said, "I did all of this." Yeah, and and season two just feels kind of egomaniacal and inward-facing, and you know, it just it, you know it, it did not have a single directorial voice. It was yeah, a lot people. of different directors. I, I think that was a problem. I will say, Kristen. I've not come around to season two at all, um, yeah. but but just because season three, um, which was certainly a more coherent piece, yes, that was such a kind of dutiful, obvious attempt to redo yes. season yeah. one. Season two looks to me a little more fun as a result because it, it it is just so loopy. I mean, you, yeah. you mentioned, I mean, Vince Vaughn has these speeches <laughs> that go on and on and on. And do you remember, Kristen? I'm I'm I, I'm I'm forgetting it now, but this was the season where a character who we'd met like once died and then was talked about for like a whole episode <laughs> it's just like who, who are we discussing now why is this why is this a literally thing i mentioned? never knew what was going on and i'll be honest i didn't fully follow what whatever was going on in season one because it got very weird the murder investigation and then the weird like group of people yeah. that was raping children like really disturbing and upsetting but i always knew like bad guys doing bad things to women right. and children whereas with this i was like wait something about real estate what's what what who yeah. what and and yeah. then there was like the parties that rachel mcadams would go to with all parties. the call girls and she and, yeah. she, uh, it, and then and her the, her father was running fake esalen yeah, up in like, like Sir. yeah there was there was just all kinds of strange things that it, it it definitely i mean it was it was certainly an example of the blank check television yeah. that we've always talked about of just like a lot being thrown at something where the the basic foundations of what's going on are are, are not always clear um, Kristen, we're, we're going to stick with HBO, unfortunately, <laughs> uh, for my pick for worst season two after a good season one. And as you mentioned, surprisingly, a lot of examples of bad season twos this decade. I, I think some of it has to do with the fact that with television now, you can do so much with a story. You know, the first season can like kill lots of characters, can take these great twists, can take these great leaps. But doing that with a great first season is not always it's not setting you up for a long run right. the way that earlier shows that were less crazy could sort of, you know, last for a long time or could figure out kind of what their cruising altitude was. Um, you know, different shows to choose from, but I, I keep coming back to Westworld season two <laughs> in 2018 because I'm I, just laughing because like, I, I really know. enjoyed it. I, I mean, know, I know it I went, know I went, Kristen. I know it went down downhill, but anyway, go ahead. But no, well, and, and we've talked about this before and, yeah. and in, in fairness, what you have told me you enjoy about it, 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 it's made me kind of rethink it in a lot of ways, but it's just, it's hard for me because I loved Westworld season one. Mm -hmm. I, I, I really felt like here was something that was tackling so many different you know concepts and just you know the idea of this park kind of being almost a a video game experience and even just the lingo and the way you kind of got into the whole idea mm -hmm. of, like this, of this narrative that's being constructed and anthony hopkins as this god figure and, and jeffrey wright and tandy newton and all these people doing such great work and for me season two just really felt like a big waste of time um i i always think it's kind of telling when uh the best episode of a show is the 
one where none of the main characters are really in it. Uh, and in, in, in Westworld, and you know, in, in Westworld season two had that really, really good episode about uh, the robots who were kind of meant to be the Native Americans. Yes, uh, that was a the great main, episode. The main character of whom was played by uh, Zahn McLarnon, who was also great in Fargo season two, and oh, he's great so in a lot of things. Um, but beyond that, you know, Dolores as a character just seemed to become impossible to understand. Yeah. And she kind of just became a plot person who was going from one place to the next. Um, I, I do think Westworld season two was kind of an example of a science fiction show that's very clearly about one kind of concept in this case robots and the robots coming to life suddenly it also became about like oh and the robots can imitate people and you can take their personality out of one thing and put it in another thing and this kind of led to a lot of twists that basically left you feeling like oh well, anybody could be anybody now it's hard to you know <laughs> it's hard to know who we're kind of really investing in um and it was just i i, I think it was a bummer for me because i really felt like there was so much going right with season one yeah. and even you know the reappearances of people who were great in season one uh like um, our favorite person jimmy simpson who's oh, so I awesome as the younger william and season two really was trying to figure out how do we bring this guy back in a meaningful yes. way and i just don't think it did so for, for me this is the one that really stands out as taking a show that i thought was you know best of the decade material and making me feel a little less good about it now all that being said Kristen, season three seems like it's going to be a pretty big was, shift well, where are you kind of at now with your expectations well for, for i was going to ask you like season three seems totally different i don't even really get what's happening like aaron paul's <laughs> there and he's talking to like real thing, estate real estate <laughs> real estate hey, he's talking to a guy that or to like an actual robot that like is made of metal like unclear if dolores or anybody you know who kind of left westworld in the end of season two if they're going to be uh out in this world yeah. i mean it definitely looks very different and you know Given that the second half of the second season had a lot of problems, even though I still enjoyed it, I do think a shift, like a complete narrative shift, maybe does make sense. And yeah. so I'm interested for sure. I mean, are you definitely going to check it out? I, I will certainly check it out. Um, you know, here for Aaron Paul doing anything. Yeah. Uh, you know, having having just said after season two, I want something very different. The fact that they've clearly decided to do something very different seems like something that I'll react to. Uh, I will just say, Kristen, that. Um, I find for a lot of people, um, you roughly maybe within 10 years of being my age, there's kind of this feeling of like, whoa, are they doing something that looks like Blade Runner? I'm totally in. <laughs> and I, I kind of don't feel that way anymore. I, 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 I almost feel like looking like Blade Runner is now the biggest cliche oh you can God, do for a future is. tale. So I, I'm, the fact that that first trailer looked very kind of, new kind of Blade Runner on the small screen. I, I was hesitant about that, um, but I will certainly be, uh, I'll, I'll be checking it out because, you know, when there's a bad season two, there's nothing better than a show that kind of refines yeah, its that rallies and, and comes exactly. back. And, and you know, I, I, I think as, as a TV watcher, that's one of the best feelings a TV show can give you is when it's like, oh, we've, we've kind of refigured out what we were doing or we're kind of boldly doing something new. Like Friday Night Lights. Like, yes. Let's just forget. Let's just forget they put the body over the bridge and just let's forget it. Let's I mean, forget Friday, it. Night let's Lights, Friday Night Lights season three is kind of the gold standard yes. as far as being like, you know, we are, we are kind of back to, I, I think FNL season three starts with Coach Taylor saying we're focused on football <laughs> and that's that's kind of what you want yeah. a show to do sometimes that's exactly right coach <laughs> on june 14th your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in disney pixar's inside out 2 it's time to greet your team riley it's anger let me at him ah! fear safety checklist is complete disgust ew ew Ugh! 
Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm Anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going! Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters June 14th. Get tickets now. All right, so let's move into worst comedy of the decade. And, you know, obviously there are a lot of options for the worst Mm -hmm. comedy of the decade. And many of them were on CBS, actually. Um, (laughs) You've got your Angel from Hell in 2016, which completely wasted the talents of star Jane Lynch. You've got your completely unnecessary reboot of The Odd Couple in 2016, in which Matthew Perry defiled a comedic treasure so that he could cash a paycheck he couldn't possibly need. And, of course, you've got your Man with a Plan, which is on right now, a banal time killer that's currently adding to Matt LeBlanc's considerable bank account. But I'm going to go with something else. A short-lived ABC sitcom called Work It, which aired for two highly unfortunate episodes in January of 2013. If you don't remember Work It, count your blessings, but it starred Ben Koldyke and Amori Nolasco, an actor I like, as two unemployed St. Louis guys who scheme their way into new jobs as pharmaceutical reps by dressing as women because the, the company only hires ladies. So yes, it was a blip on the TV radar, but Work It earns the title as worst comedy of the decade because it embodies pretty much all of the worst tendencies of a broadcast television sitcom. Uh, It takes an idiotic concept and uses it as a springboard for unfunny jokes about tired gender stereotypes. Men are bores who only care about beer and boobs. Women are nags or objects of lust. The two sexes can only exist to be at odds. I mean, at least Bosom Buddies gave us Tom Hanks and Peter Scolari, and all that work it can claim as its legacy is a joke that compares prostate exams to, and I quote, the pinball scene in The Accused. Google it, kids. So (laughs) it's just, it perfectly encapsulates everything that's wrong, you know, with broadcast three-camera sitcoms. It's a disaster. You can find the the pilot if you Google, um, although, like, really, you don't need to know it. You can just watch the the preview trailer and get the sense of what it is. Do, do you remember this show, Darren? I remember it. I didn't actually watch it, Kristen, but I I, I recall uh, you know at, at a time when it was still kind of possible to absorb pretty much everything that was happening yeah. in, in a new season of television. This is the one that really stuck out that year. I'm 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 glad you were you were pulling it out of the abyss to throw it back into the abyss once again. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. It's one of those things where like, you look at it and you're like, how did this get made? But then you're also like, I get why it got made because a a bunch of dudes in a room, and certainly at that time, it was probably mostly dudes in a room, uh, thought, oh, you know, guys putting on makeup, guys wearing heels, you know, and then also making jokes that equate rape to uh, prostate exams. Um, that's funny. That's funny yeah. stuff. Let's give it a try. Yeah. Um, it apparently aired its full season in New Zealand, <laughs> which is something I learned in my Lucky ra- rabbit hole of uh, <laughs> research. But anyway, yeah. So work it. It was a disaster. January twenty thirteenth, two episodes. Or January twenty thirteen, two episodes. Vivai. 
There were a lot of shows in that time period that just just immediately seemed so totally out of date yes. and, and and now seem like almost hilariously as an assault on <laughs> all good taste and, yes. and, and manners. But it was, all, it was all kind of stuff like that. It was all yeah. just like dudes making incredibly doodly jokes. I, I don't know. It's, I, I feel as if I'm not sure everything is better on television now, but certainly it seems like you can't quite get away with doing that so baldly as they were doing at that time did you feel that Kristen, or am i am i being incredibly optimistic you know it it is hard to know like is there some truly offensive show that we're missing i don't think i mean this show is problematic in in a variety of ways and you know it was problematic in 2013 (laughs) as opposed to you know shows that certainly were seen you know everything seemed fine in the context of uh the culture at the time you know but this is definitely one where you know even just the idea of men dressing as women, you know, for a job, it just seemed like, I feel like there's a whole population that would feel pretty, uh, pretty uh, offended by this with yeah. good reason. Yeah. Um, Kristen, we're going to stay in roughly the same uh, totally ridiculous, toxic corner of, of the world for <laughs> my worst comedy. And I will say, Kristen, this is a bit of a game time decision for me yeah. uh, because as I teased earlier, I was really, really close to talking about how I about how I thought the worst comedy of the 20 teens was Netflix's Maniac, um, which was just such a total waste of talent for yeah. pretty much everybody yeah. involved. Um, but I, I, I think I can't really get in a soap box with that because maniac was certainly uh trying very hard to do lots of terrible things um so instead i'm going to talk about a show that just really stands out to me as just kind of awful and ridiculous and also just so all-encompassing when it happened Uh, i'm talking about charlie sheen and anger management which (laughs) debuted in 2012 and I think someday, Kristen, someone will write like the great book of the 20 teens will be kind of all about um, the insanity around Charlie Sheen mm-hmm. at the start of this decade. Uh, I really think that like that as a kind of journalistic event was something that seemed to really set the tone in a lot of sorrowful ways for what would happen later in this decade. This idea of a guy just kind of going crazy and doing it on social media and that kind of really being the biggest story for a couple yeah, of months. Yeah. Um, I think it's something that, you know, as much as it's kind of gladly been forgotten, I, I think that still kind of lives with us. One way that it continued to live with us was that FX immediately signed Charlie Sheen after he was fired from Two and a Half Men to do anger management. And it's sort of barely even a show in right. some ways. Um, you know, it, it was very much intended to resemble Two and a Half Men. It's a very similar style of comedy to Two and a Half Men. Uh, and the most notable thing about it is that FX purchased 100 episodes of it. So it just kept <laughs> like on off running. off the bat. Off the bat, it just kind of kept on running and running and running. Um, and I, I will admit, I did not watch all 100 episodes. Uh, I think I did not watch any episodes uh, very much at all past season one, except for occasionally accidentally uh, uh, watching it. <laughs> (laughs) on FX. But this was kind of an example, Kristen, of in a different way from what you're describing, you know, it was kind of taking this sort of tabloid thing, taping, uh, taking someone who had been a star on CBS mm-hmm. and just kind of plugging them in horrifically to a non-concept. It was kind of a workplace comedy. You know, he was running an anger management group. It just felt very much 
rooted in the idea of this will work because Charlie Sheen is a comedic right. individual. And in fact, you know, he isn't really. I mean, two and a half men, to the extent that it ever worked, he was not the one doing the hard oh, work no. there, not the one doing the heavy lifting there. It was and all think, John Cryer. And I think that, you know, if you're ever going to respect Chuck Lorre, you're going to respect him for doing something with Charlie Sheen after seeing someone else try to do something with Charlie Sheen. Um, and so something about this show... And the fact that it got such a big order and the fact that it was, you know, a part of the cable landscape for a long enough time to be a thing, that's always really kind of stuck out to me as just, you know, something that really is unsettling. Um, and, you know, there was a lot of information about the show that came out you know, along the way and Selma Blair ultimately left. And there was all this kind of mm. not so great stuff in the behind the scenes. Yeah. And the fact that the stuff in front of the scenes was just so dead and so not funny and not anything um, was pretty, pretty ridiculous. So I, I'm, I'm kind of calling that one out here. Do you remember anything about this show, Kristen? Or did you ever even kind of watch it? When you know it was what? On? I don't think I ever watched it. I remember you know, just everything about what you're saying in terms of like, he had this sort of public meltdown. And rather than being like, this man really needs help, you know, Hollywood was like, let's give him a show. Yeah. And, you know, which is often the the response in terms of when people are clearly, you know, uh, distressed and suffering from, you know, any, any number of, of, of issues, you know, the, the response is often not to like, try to help them <laughs> you know yeah, it's to like yeah. just try to capitalize on it and so but i mean yeah he he's you know i think the best acting you know comedic acting he ever did was in ferris bueller's day off uh where yep. his sort of flat affect was you know used for for it you know really really funny effect but in in two and a half men and in this it's just like he gives that kind of delivery where he always sounds like he He's laughing at his own joke and yes. like he's always about to break. And, you know, hey, that'll work for Seinfeld because Jerry Seinfeld and Larry David created a show that was really funny. Whereas yeah. if you're just, you know, kind of too too amused by your own cleverness and yet you're not clever at all, like it's not it, it's well, not a great look. And and it's so great that you bring up Seinfeld. Um, you know, part of the joke eventually on Seinfeld was that Jerry was kind of a somewhat heartless person. Yes, uh, or, or they if, were all if, terrible. If, yeah, exactly. And, and the show was very aware of that. And as we look back on some of the entertainment, certainly of, of this decade and, and previously, we'll kind of see these shows where it'll be like, oh, well, like the main character, he's a real like, you know, on anger management. He was somebody who had been a baseball player and he had all these anger issues and all, all these kind of personal issues. Mm -hmm. But the joke was always ultimately like, oh, but, you know, he's kind of a, he's he's an OK guy deep down. <laughs> and I, I suspect that, like, you know, it doesn't take too much imagination to look at these shows and be like, oh, this is like a window into the mind of a sociopath yeah. like, or this is. This is like, you know, constructed around the idea that this person deserves a show made about them when in fact, if anything, it's the people around them who have to deal with him <laughs> who probably have very a very different perspective on him. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I just it, it this really kind of stands out to me, you know, as as much as I do think there are comedies that were more obviously a waste of good talent. Um this was just kind of a waste of all time and just a, a real kind of cheap attempt to cash in um which, oh. you know, did which did not really produce uh, anything good. So that that is my pick for, for for worst comedy. Well, I have to say, cheap attempt to cash in is a great segue uh, for the worst reality of the de the decade. And my choice um, 
is I Want to Marry Harry, uh, which aired on Fox (laughs) from May to June in 2014. A knockoff of a knockoff of a knockoff, I Want to Marry Harry aired four episodes in May and June of 2014, the show in which 12 single women competed for the affections of a British ginger they thought was Prince Harry, but was actually just a commoner named Matthew Hicks. It was a variation on Fox's infamous dating show, Joe Millionaire, which itself was a tawdry variation on ABC's successful dating show, The Bachelor. I Want to Marry Harry was one in a long line of the Fox Network's uh, twisted attempts to replicate the Bachelor franchise. You had Mr. Personality, The Guys Wore Masks, Monica Lewinsky hosted. You had More to Love, Plus Size, The Bachelor. You had The Littlest Groom, Dwarf, The Bachelor. And you had Playing It Straight, which was The Bachelorette, but some of the men are secretly gay. Uh, So the show itself, I Want to Marry Harry, was a paint-by-numbers reality show, but what really galls me is that producers couldn't even find a decent Harry lookalike. The dude wasn't even a a real redhead. He was blonde, and he dyed his hair for the quote-unquote role. I love the royal family, particularly Princess Diana's two sons, so I find this show particularly egregious in the way it exploited the royals and did a shitty job of it, too. Um, so the show aired in 2014, which is the year after Mike Darnell, who is who was Fox's evil genius president of alternative programming, left the network. And you know what? He once told EW's own Dan Sneerson uh, when he was at Fox that he hoped one day to produce a female prisoner beauty pageant. And honestly, I would have rather watched that. <laughs> Did you watch I Want to Marry Harry? Do you remember it? Uh, you know, uh, I do remember Kristen. Uh, I, I I didn't watch it. Uh, I'm I'm uh, I'm decidedly less invested in the royal family mm-hmm, in general mm-hmm. than, than you are. So the idea of watching a knockoff version of the royal family <laughs> is about as much fun as the idea of drinking like you know Safeway Select brand Pepsi to me. Yeah, um, yeah. But I will, I'm, I'm so glad you mentioned Mike Darnell. I worry sometimes that uh, kids today we'll have really learn. heard so much about him. He's he is such a like. Do you remember? Because I think he was still at Fox when they did Joe Millionaire. Oh, of course, that's, yeah. That's you know you were kind of talking about all these attempts to to do the Bachelor except with a twist, and that's what I always remember is just being so absurd and delightful and, and ridiculous and stupid. He is the man. Sounds... Remember, he's the man who brought us the three hundred pound tumor <laughs> in the Guinness World Records. I mean, oh, God, he, just, you know, but but it's it's sad because so much of what he did and we whether it was puerile or whether it was like ridiculous, there was often a sense of humor behind yes. it. I, I thought, and just I don't know the, the way you're describing this, it just sounds like. Like, you know, dumb concept, dumb execution. Why is this happening? No, no one's, sense of no humor. One, yeah. yeah, no sense of humor. No one there is even really fully committing to it. Um, God, that's so... And, and there was no season two of this, I assume. No, right? there was not. <laughs> they didn't even air the full season. And like some lady, quote unquote, won. But then, you know, whatever. Um, <laughs> must have been a... Must have been, what, a what a victory for her. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, my uh, worst reality. Uh, I'm I'm going in a different genre direction sure. um, because Kristen. Apparently, I really enjoy docu soaps. Yeah, I my know you thing, do. Is the kind of lifestyle reality shows, um, and the one I'm picking out. We're going way back to 2010 here, Kristen, uh, because A and E briefly and quite unmemorably had a show called The Hasselhoffs. Do you remember? Oh my God. The Hasselhoffs? I think I do. So, 
as you would expect, this is basically an attempt to do the Osborne, yep. but for the Hasselhoffs. Uh, this show aired not long after David Hasselhoff had had a whole kind of, I don't want to say a scandal, but he'd clearly been struggling with some personal issues. Yeah, yeah. There was a hamburger thing. Yep, it went viral. Yep. I don't even want to really go into it. Um, but what, what always troubled me about this show, besides the fact that it was very boring, it was David Hasselhoff, <laughs> it was David Hasselhoff and his daughters. And I mean, again... I'm not saying the Osbournes was great television, but again, a show like this, it goes pretty far with a sense of humor, which this one was trying to have and definitely did not. Mm -hmm. You kind of had David Hasselhoff narrating his life and narrating the lives of his two daughters. And what always struck me about it was that, you know, what made the Osbournes interesting viewing Mm -hmm. was that it was kind of taking one of the most extreme versions of stardom, like Ozzy Osbourne, you know, what he was and biting a head off of a bird and all this stuff, and just totally cutting it off at the knees. I mean, you know, we're so used to that idea now with celebrities, but that was really a kind of exciting and hilarious thing to see. And you were really seeing those people at their most, you know, I don't want to say the most realistic, but there was certainly an effort to be like, you know, we're going to kind of look look, look behind the, the curtain here. And with this one, it just all felt like a brand deposit for someone, yeah. David Hasselhoff, who really didn't understand that he was having some issues. You know, on the show, he kind of addressed the issues that he'd been having, and he kind of said, you know, I've, I've learned a lot from it. But it just felt as if the show and he were capitalizing so much mm. on notoriety. And you never want to feel when you're watching a reality show, Kristen, like it's it's like like the mere act of watching it is making the people's lives on screen much much worse because it's yeah. teaching them the wrong decision it's teaching them yeah like i should do this now i'm on television this is a good thing mm-hmm. um so i want to say good on you america for not making this show a hit um but I, I do think it just it always stands out to me there was a line where you know hasselhoff who was narrating would talk about how, oh it's a real hassle to be a hoff and it just seemed <laughs> oh, like it just seemed like someone who was getting all the wrong messages about you know how he was interacting with the world and what the world was expecting of him. Um, yeah. and, you know, we, we obviously, you know, now over the course of this decade, the Hasselhoff as a show would probably just be a very active Instagram account. Yeah. And so I, <laughs> I, I don't think the lesson has been learned if that makes any sense. No, for um, sure. <laughs> and you know, you're, you're so right about what you said regarding the Osbournes, because at the time, like the idea of watching Ozzy Osbourne struggle to put a, tr- a like a trash bag in his trash can because yes. he like like that was fascinating. So interesting. It was like the first television sort of representation of stars. They're just like us, you yeah. know, and like yeah. and yeah. The, the, they're funny and they were funny people. They're funny people, and then you know everybody sort of jumped on that train and it became this thing where like you know. You can show a celebrity, quote unquote, living his his or her normal life, but if they are not interesting or uh, entertaining people, nobody's going to want to watch it. You know, the Osbournes were funny. It had the novelty of this sort of celebrity genre, which was it helped create. And it also had a cast of characters who were really interesting people. Exactly right. You know, I always think of something, Kristen, that was said in the most recent uh, reunion of the Real Housewives of of New York City. Um, I guess I shouldn't say I always think of it because it literally just happened. But, you know, a lot of the housewives were kind of felt like Tinsley Mortimer's big problem is she doesn't really reveal a lot of herself Mm -hmm. on, on, on a show. And like, you know, 
I'm not going to say that Real Housewives is a confessional, intensive look into the interior lives of the frequently ridiculous people who are on screen, but I do think with reality television, you're very aware of when people are going the extra mile to kind of yes. present some <laughs> close approximation of the truth of their lives on screen, mm -hmm. and the Hasselhoffs is the polar opposite of that, where you're just like, no, you're doing this because you think it'll be good for your career, right. and because, and God help us, you think you're funny, yeah. <laughs> which, which was Definably not the case. So that's why Hasselhoff's is my pick for worst reality TV amidst a true vast and uh, wild assortment of reality television that aired in, in the 2010s. So, so many options, but that's a, that's a very good pick, a very good bad pick. Um, so our final category is drama and, you know, the big kahuna and a lot of options again. Um, and, you know, we talked a little bit about this uh, off air, Darren, where we, you know, do we go with something just that's so stupid like that yeah. ABC show Magic Cop or we do, do we go with something? It wasn't called that, but you know what I mean. Or do we go with, you know, something that is, you know, more deeply offensive or deeply problematic. And I went with the latter. My choice is Criminal Minds, uh, which premiered in 2005 and will end next year with its 15th and final season. Back in 2012, Mandy Patinkin, who starred in Criminal Minds from 2005 to 2007, said that joining the show was, quote, the biggest public mistake I ever made. He went on to criticize the content of the series, which is about a group of profilers from the FBI's Behavioral Analysis Unit. He said, quote, I never thought they were going to kill and rape all these women every night, every day, week after week, year after year. But kill and rape women criminal minds did and continues to do week after week. Uh, the hit CBS drama returns in January for its final season. And from its very first episode, in which a killer kidnaps women and holds them in a cage for a week before murdering them, Criminal Minds has showcased an endless variety of depraved and disgusting ways to torture and kill women, pouring acid in their eyes, season six, uh, exsanguinating women and cutting their eyelids off, crushing their bones while they're still alive, decapitating them, strangling them and stuffing them into suitcases and so on and so on. While the show also maims, mutilates, and murders men and children, too, its general mission has been one uh, of sort of gender-specific torture porn. It loves to fetishize and dramatize violence against women. You know, there are plenty of other shows that like to brutalize women, but none of them do it with such dedication and consistence and pure, unadulterated masochism as Criminal Minds. Even something as voyeuristic and sexploitative as Law & Order SVU has redeeming qualities, specifically the idea that all victims of sexual assault and, and abuse deserve to have a tireless, dedicated team of cops working to bring them justice. With Criminal Minds, though, it's just about grim-faced people wallowing in the most debauched and evil scenarios that the writers can conjure up. And I guess I would say as a as my last little note about Criminal Minds, Thomas Gibson, he was a cast member who eventually was fired from the show uh, for his onset behavior. Um, just if you want to do yourself a favor, if you need a laugh, just Google Thomas Gibson and Hot Tub. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> Kristen, it's funny you mentioned uh, Thomas Gibson because th th whenever I've watched Criminal Minds, which I've always done quite grudgingly, yeah, um, his his role on the show there's there's a special place in history for the nominally heroic crime solvers on television who 
when you watch them, you just feel that they are playing the bad guy. Right. And, and, and <laughs> you know, like um, there's a there's a great kind of stretch of uh, the wonderful documentary Los Angeles plays itself. That that's all about like Dragnet and yeah. how like and and how viewed from today something about Joe Friday, who I I loved watching the show when I was a kid, but it can seem quite off putting just the totally humorless quality. And that was always what I felt with Thomas Gibson on this show and with this show in general. Um, you know, Kristen we've both kind of become very interested in in the new series Evil on CBS, um, which minor and not the craziest thing that happened in the episode, spoiler alert, recently threw a baby in the pool. Um, And what was was funny talking about that with a lot of people is, you know, I know a lot of people who watch that episode who don't watch much CBS, who nevertheless kind of expressed, wow, I can't believe CBS would do this. Yeah. And and there is this sort of sense of CBS as, oh, well, you know, it's the kind of more archaic network, it's the older network, Mm -hmm. it skews older and its viewers and you know and that would seem to imply it's somewhat as sanitized entertainment and that is way not the case not with the case. regards to criminal minds and a lot of their procedurals and I, I always think that this show is kind of patient zero for <laughs> redefining like just the the utter violence of mainstream entertainment and what yeah. that's kind of done to our definition of mainstream entertainment so I'm, I'm glad that you're kind of calling it out because it does doesn't seem as if, even though the show is ending, I think that its curious influence um, will continue. Oh, I agree. Um, Kristen, I am going to call out a show that was much uh, less long-lasting than Criminal Minds. And in in terms of influence, I would say it kind of reflects being influenced in all the wrong ways rather than influencing in um, all the wrong ways. Um, But uh, when I think of just bad, awful television that made me want to throw my TV out the window (laughs) and go into the woods for the rest of my life um, with with my family, not as a hermit. Of course, of course. And and only if they wanted to, and and, and probably only for like a weekend. Um, It's AP uh, from 2017, uh, APB, which aired <laughs> on the Fox network. Um, I love how even, much you hate this show. trying to explain this show. <laughs> so the show is basically what would happen if a tech CEO, you know, those people who you hate now because they have done everything they can to ruin democracy and make billions of dollars while making our life miserable. And I don't know, maybe there are people out there who still feel strongly defensive about people like Elon Musk or Mark Zuckerberg. And, you know, I'm, I'm sure there are aspects of what Silicon Valley has done to our lives that we'll someday say, well, okay, there are positives and negatives, but, but in 2018, <laughs> I don't think there were a lot of people who were like, let's make a hero out, out of these people. What APB presupposes is, what if an Elon Musk type decided to fix the crime problem in Chicago by giving the police a shit ton of weapons? Oh, my God. And it's just like, you know... I, I don't want to get too political here, and the show's problems are more so that it's just really, really dumb and basically just Robocop without a sense of humor. <laughs> but, you know, th- th- this show from its pilot on through the few episodes that I could stomach, it just seemed to be doing something that I think a lot of television was doing, especially in the last half of this decade, where it was kind of saying, you know what? 
we're going to kind of address some stuff that's going on right now. Right. And then just doing it in the worst way possible. Um, the show is very derivative. The introduction to Gideon Reeves, uh, the character played by Justin Kirk, who was the fake Elon Musk. Um, it was very clearly influenced by the Iron Man movies and this idea mm -hmm. of we're going to have this multi-billion dollar tech CEO who's a funny guy and has a kind of witty sense of humor. And oh boy, oh boy, nothing will make you love Robert Downey Jr. more than seeing a bloated... <laughs> You know, a, 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 an attempt to capture that and do it very, very badly. Yeah. Um, but I, I just feel that, you know, there was something so totally point missing at a time when, you know, how we talk about law and order in general has become really complicated in an, in an exciting and important and urgent way to kind of just say, what we need to do is let Silicon Valley take this over. It yeah. Just, it, it, it was so totally wrongheaded. It did not last very long. Um, and again, this is me saying, great job, America. <laughs> <laughs> which, which is not something that we often get to say these days. No. <laughs> and what I, what I found so, I mean, so many of the things that the show are, are so stupid, but like what I found incredibly fascinating and stupid was that they had the Elon Musk character like, basically move in full-time to the Chicago Police Department headquarters. He was given ownership over a precinct. Yeah, and he, like, <laughs> went there every day and, like, ran crime scenes and was, like, you know, uh, sort of flying the remote-controlled drone to, like, get the bad guy at, at crime scenes, like, from the precinct. Like, I'm sorry, you're a billionaire tech person like don't you have an actual job and yeah. like do you have any law enforcement experience yeah. and None. like no None. but they're like okay rich that white seemed, man come on in that, that's exactly that <laughs> seemed to be the thinking was like well you know we've failed at this we living in chicago a yeah. city that is very multiracial and that has all kinds of, 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 of particular issues that you know like any city have to be solved let's let this rich white guy come in and solve them i mean it's just like it's, it's almost it kind of goes back to what i was saying like it's almost a horror you right. know, idea that the show just played in such the the wrong direction and that really you know everything you're saying i think really captures the the feel of the show and like, the feel of what it was going i for. feel like if they had just kind of changed a few elements of the tone it could have been the hunt you know like, yes <laughs> like, no absolutely yeah yeah and, and instead i mean again it was just you know it was stupid it was really expensive and silly and uh, each episode they would kind of be using different cool technology yeah and it was just it just seemed you know, um, I, especially after this year, I think that there's still so much that network television can do. Mm -hmm. um, but this was certainly an example of kind of <laughs> network television and it's most just stuffed full of all kinds of badness and, and trying to be mainstream in, in the worst way. So that's that's my pick that that stands out as the worst drama of, of the 20 teens. Well, um, I mean, we had a pretty well-rounded list of crap, didn't we? We, we somehow fit in David Hasselhoff. Yeah. We fit in the royal family. Uh, we got we got robots. We got the Bluths. Uh, we got poor poor Murphy Brown, who now we can go back to just remembering the good times that we had with her back in the nineties. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> um, but Kristen, that that wraps it up for uh, this episode of Best of Shows. We do want to hear from from everybody out there. I'd love to hear from the from the fans of APB. If you are out there, let's have a good long conversation. <laughs> 
<laughs> about the show because frankly you're the only you're the only other ones who who ever watched the show um so let us know what you think we're on twitter she's at Kristen g baldwin i'm at darren franich while you're letting us know how you feel give us a rating give us a review we are everywhere that you find your podcasts on apple Podcasts, radio.com spotify we're having such a fun time right now in our little mini series all about the best tv of the 20 teens and we want to hear what you think and what we can do going forward uh until next week i should have a catchphrase but i don't so goodbye 